Oh God, that's what we are. We're as diverse as this planet itself, but we come together and we are family. What does it mean to be family? Here we are launching a new season's journey and, oh Lord, if, if, if you're not leading this journey, there is no point in taking a step farther. We have worshipped you with all our minds and bodies and souls these last few moments. We come to the Word believing that here you have directions for us. And so, dear God, heirs of the covenant, help us to walk in unity with you as the journey begins. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I've got to tell you that I usually come to a, a new sermon series with a sense of energy and um, anticipation. I can hardly wait to get into this. But I'm going to be very candid with you. I'm coming this time. The antithesis of that, I, I come with trepidation. I come to this sermon series with a sense of uncertainty. I mean, how is this going to go? This last spring... Our family life uh, committee here at Pioneer under the chair of Ada Garcia said, Dwight, you've got to come and meet with us. And so we had lunch together over in the cafeteria. And they laid it out and they said, come on, you have got to be preaching on family life. we got some major issues here that we struggle with as students and faculty and community. And if the gospel doesn't address these issues, then what good is the gospel? You've got to deal with sexuality and you've got to deal with the whole social dimension of the, of the, of the human life and and please approach it from the perspective of the aged and the, and the middle-aged and, and the young and, and just connect with us. And I'm thinking to myself, how can that even be possible? I acquiesced. I agreed because it was a great lunch in the cafeteria. And they were paying. But I'm thinking as I get into the summer, what have I gotten into? How, how can I do this? How can you take a family life series and personalize it for, for everybody who's present? I've been reading uh, Philip Yancey and that delightful book of his, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And he talks about junk mail. You get junk mail, don't you? He said, he said you know, it, one month I decided to see how much junk mail am I really, really getting. So he took a cardboard box and every time a junk letter came, he put it in the box. At the end of the month, 62 letters, 3.5 pounds in weight. He said, I'm fascinated with this idea of trying to personalize the letters. Dear Mr. Yancey D. Philip, what is this? He said that the Popeye chicken restaurant next to me got a form letter. Junk mail said, Dear Mr. Chicken. <laughs> These computers, they don't know. He said the Assemblies of God, national headquarters here in the U.S., Assemblies of God, got a letter. It said, Dear Ms. God. What is this? Now, I shared that in first service and Pastor Skip was up in the balcony listening. And he came to me after the... He said, Dwight, I'm going to let you use this. You have to promise to give it back to me. I use it in my stress seminars. I said, let me see this. Oh, I've got to share this with you. We've got some mail here at, uh, here at uh, Pioneer. Dear Mrs. Pioneer M. Church. <laughs> you think you've got to give it back to me. I think I'm going to keep this. Dear Mrs. Pioneer M. Church, we haven't a clue as to why you haven't sent for your free sample pair of Silky's pantyhose. Mrs. Pioneer M. Church, so we thought you might need to take a closer look. And they included a free sample. 
We put it on the banister and just forgot it. Can you believe this? I mean, how can you be personal? It, it's not an exact science. And so here we're coming to this. We're coming to this new series. Yeah, I, I'm excited about what we're about to get into, but I come with trepidation. That's why I'd like to invite you to be praying for this series. In fact, we put it in your bulletin today. It's a little bookmark. And I hope you hang on to this bookmark. It gives you the, the sermon titles, 11 parts in this series. We're beginning part one today. I hope you'll keep this wherever you go to pray because we've got to pray first before we get into this, this series. And if you'd pray for me and you're looking at these titles and you say, man, do I, I can't figure out a thing you're preaching about. That's the whole point. But just pray for what might be behind that title and pray that God somehow will make this a meaningful journey and that as the Family Life Committee has asked, that it will become personal for us and, and, and we'll know how to live as family. Because we're all a part of a family at home, a family here, a family somewhere. We've had our prayer together. I'm ready to go. I tell you what, you can almost feel the pathos between these lines. There is so much written between these lines. If only we had the time, you and me, to relive what's in between. But I, I, I wish you would just read with me the terse announcement found here in the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 3. Let's go. Let's just go. Genesis chapter 3. Our text today is a single line. Oh, there is so... It, it replete. The, the, the emotion, the pathos in between the lines here in Genesis chapter 3. It's just one line. It's verse 21. Genesis 3. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Thank you for bringing your Bible for this series because we're going to be in the Word together, you and I. Genesis chapter 3, 21. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. I tell you, there is pathos there. There is emotion. You've got to remember, folks, three of them, God and man and woman, these three have been the closest and dearest and truest of friends. In fact, I remind you that when God leaned over that marbled clay sculpture, lying like a fallen statue, cold and still on the red earth of Eden, when God leaned over it, Every rippling muscle in place, every shiny strand of hair in place, but all lifeless, just like you see in a casket. We're going to watch death in reverse now. When God leaned over and breathed into those chiseled, motionless nostrils the warm breath of life, and when Adam's eyes flickered and finally blinked open, I remind you, the very first face he ever gazes into is the smiling face of God. By the way, those of our loved ones who have died and are resting in the grave, the very first face they shall ever see on resurrection, hallelujah, will be the smiling face of God. It's the same story. I'll remind you that just a few hours later, same God leans over this bloody piece of stubby rib. I know that when we usually imagine the story, we, fi we, we figure it's gone through the formaldehyde and everything is clean and white. Are you kidding? They, they just, God just extracted it from the side of the sleeping man. There's still sinew on it. There's still blood, marrow on it. Three feet long because they were bigger back then. But he takes that rib. <laughs> Same God leans over it and carves it with the same infinite precision and loving skill and breathes into those exquisite, 
but cold nostrils of that lifeless statue, the warm breath of life. And Eve's eyes slowly flutter. She slowly awakens. Come on, folks. The very first face she ever in her life gazes into is looking down at her with a wide smile. It's the face of God. Wow. You know what? We get such joy over reliving the moment when Adam and Eve meet for the first time. I mean, I've done this before. We've all heard those stories. And I always put a little wolf whistle in it when Eve comes walking up. We get so enamored with that moment. In fact, downstairs in our church, you go down after, after this service. Go down to the commons and you will see it looks like the original. Nathan Green. Let's put it up on the screen. Nathan Green has painted. He's captured the moment of Adam and Eve at that meeting. This is so beautiful. Just look at that. The color isn't great. But you go look at the original downstairs and it is, it is splendid. Adam and Eve. Love at first sight. We get so, oh my, tell it to me again. But ladies and gentlemen, I remind you, we forget too often that the first love, the first love at first sight was with God. The first one they fell in love with, each of them, was God. The one in the, in, in, in the middle, in between them. Ah, come on. They have been an inseparable threesome. God and man and woman. Which is why there is such deep and painful pathos here in this single line. Let's read it again. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. You see, they had been naked. But they didn't know it. Now, most of us know when we are. Huh? They just got the sneaky suspicion. When we were up at the general conference up at Toronto on a Friday afternoon, it was the last Friday afternoon, no more business session now, Karen and Chrissy and I decided to go over to Little Island with some friends of ours, Jerry and Sue Potzer, and we, we rented tandem bikes and we just rode around. Jerry and I had gone to uh, New Guinea this spring together, and so we were reliving the memories and the laughter of it all. And finally, we came to a spot and said, hey, let's just drop our bikes over here. Let's go and check out the beach. It's in the middle of this little island, Lake Ontario. And we go walking down. When we finally emerge out of the trees, we get to the beach, and we realize we have walked straight onto a beach reserved for people who prefer swimming and sunbathing sands. That's Latin for without their swimming suits. I mean, talking about feeling overdressed. <laughs> we say, man, well, we were gone. Thank you, but no thanks. Most people know when they are naked, but not Adam and Eve. Describing that moment right after their blushing love at first sight meeting. Genesis puts it this way. Just go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 25. They have just met and fall, they've fallen in love. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God has just introduced them. Nobody's shame, no shame here. Alan Ross in his big tome entitled Creation and Blessing puts it this way. Adam and Eve, they are living in integrity. Absolutely without sin, at ease with one another, without fear of exploitation for evil. What is the deal? And then Patriarchs and Prophets comes along and actually describes the first couple as being enshrouded in a robe of light. 
Kind of like a, a translucent glory, if you please. So that it would have felt as awkward to them to put clothes on now as it would feel for you and me if suddenly we were given one of those iron body suits that the medieval knights wore. And they said, hey, now you've got to wear this for the rest of your life. Who needs this? I was feeling fine without it. They are naked. The first man and woman are robed in the light just like God. I mean, why not? After all, God made them just like Him. In fact, you and I, we read this just a moment ago in the Scripture. How many times in our lives have we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? But I'm telling you this last week, I came across an illustration by the great Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad. He shares the story, and suddenly for me, this, this single line becomes illuminated with a new radiance about what it means to be in the image of God. Let's read the line first. This is verse 26, Genesis 1 now, creation week. Then God said, verse 26, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Gerhard von Rod suggests the following story. And it happened often enough. Once upon a time, there was an ancient king who in traveling to the far corners of his kingdom, suddenly it, it occurred to him, hey, wait a minute. When strangers or enemies alike cross this border into my kingdom, how will they know this is my kingdom? We must find a plan. And so he gathers the wise sages of his kingdom. They're having a council. Everybody has agreed. You're not going to put a little sign with tiny letters on it. That just won't do. So what shall we do? Finally, one of the sages. Okay. I suggest you find the greatest artisan in your kingdom. A master sculptor. Bring him and ask him to carve an image in your likeness. Not just one, but two, three, four. And then, king, put these statues all along your border so that everyone who comes, when they see the likeness to the king, they will say, Ah, I am now on the king's land. That, Von Rod says, Aha, that is why God created the human race. I love it. He wanted this new province in the universe, this new state, tucked way out on the white milky edge of this galaxy. He wanted to station along the borders some statues, images of his likeness, so that stranger or foe alike, when they would come and see, Oh, hey, this must be the land of the king. For these, I can tell, I see, they are the children of the king. He made us to look like him. You know what, folks? I know a few thousand years have gone by since that original plan. But guess what? The enemy has not yet been able to obliterate the image of God in your face, the image of God in my life. We're still children of the King. God still has us placed here to warn all strangers who come, Hey, you may come, but we are children of the King, and this is the land of our King. Oh, I like that. Now, let's read this here. Let's go back to verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind. By the way, in the Hebrew, that's Adam, from whence comes the name Adam. It's, it's man, generic. Not gender, generic man. 
And God said, let us make Adam, humanity or humankind, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind, Adam, in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Only one? Nope, read on. Male and female, he created them. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this likeness to God, obviously, it can't be a corporeal likeness. You know, like, does God have five fingers on the right hand? Does God have five fingers on the left hand? Jesus said, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. God is a spirit. He doesn't need fingers like you have. I have fingers now because I'm forever human. But don't worry about God. He is a spirit. So we can't look like him in this regard. But there's, it's as if we were kindred spirits with him. So that we were like him emotionally. So that we are like God intellectually. So that morally we are in his image. And please note, the image has two halves to it. Male and female, he created them. It's only when the two halves are together that you have the fullest expression of his image. You ever drive down the highway? Come on, you've done this. You're driving down the interstate and you come up with these flashing signs that says, big load ahead, or what is it? Oversized load ahead. And you're, you're passing in the passing lane. And here comes, here comes a house. It looks like half a house. You ever seen those? Those mobile homes. And they put this white plastic over it and, you know, you drive around. When you see the first one, what do you know is waiting ahead somewhere? Hey, there's going to be another one. Now, you can live in one of those halves. I suppose it'd be fun to have a white plastic for one side of your house. But, you know, who wants to live in a house like that? It's when the two halves are put together that you have the fullness of what the master designer intended in the first place. That's the way it is with the image of God. I mean, women go around and say, hey, we are God's image. Well, yeah. Men go around and say, we are God's image. Yep, you're half a trailer. You have a trailer. Put the two halves together. You get the full story. And God bless them. Oh, my. I tell you, the human race was born with a silver spoon in its mouth. God blessed us right from the very beginning. You're still living under that blessing, by the way. You're still living under it. Hallelujah. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I mean, it would be like a father and son business. You ever seen a... Maybe some of you are going to be a part of a father and son, father and daughter business. When you leave here. Well, we were just this weekend, uh, actually on Labor Day, up with a friend of mine. I went to college with him. His name is Bob Slickers. He works for his dad. His dad is Leon Slickers up here in Holland, Michigan. They make, used to make slick craft boats. Now they make the Tiara yachts. Now his dad is the CEO of the company. We sat on one of those yachts. They make a 50-foot yacht, by the way, that they sell for a million dollars. Now who would, who would sail in a boat with a million? But they're people buying it. Now his father's the CEO, but Bob is the vice president for administration. Father actually owns the company, but the son is managing. That's exactly what's happening here. The king says, hey, you be vice regents. You run the planet. I'll be over there in the universe. You're here. Anybody comes, they say, hey, that boy is a boy. To... That girl is a girl of the king. You can look. See? Have at it, Adam and Eve. This is your home now. Manage it. Have dominion over it. Folks, I tell you, this is, it is such a glorious story here. This beginning 
moment in the land of God. But how tragic, and this is what just wipes you out every time you read the story, how tragic this short life story that starts in the land of God and ends up in the land of Nod. Turn to chapter 4. Look at this. In this heartache, it's just two pages. Heartache. Chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain, he's just murdered his brother Abel. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. John Steinbeck, the great novelist, sees these words for his powerful tale, east of Eden. Away from the land of God, far away to the land of Nod. Nod is Hebrew, it means wandering. The fam- Get this, how tragic. The family begins as rulers in the land of God, and in the space of two pages, they become rebels in the land of Nod. Wanders far away from home. And that, my friends, is the crippling reality of human hearts and human homes today. We dream of a garden, but every time we awaken, we keep waking up east of Eden. Far from the land of God, we find ourselves trapped, as it were, living and dying in the land of Nod. A friend of mine was sharing just a few days ago. He's telling me, hey, Dwight, I was sitting in a circle of my colleagues, and by the way, not very far from here. I was sitting in a circle of my colleagues and it came time to pray. And so just before we prayed, I said, hey, hey, I just have a little prayer request. Would you pray for my kids? Now, he didn't intend this to be a catharsis or a confession. He just, we're going to have prayer. Would somebody remember my kids? And it was as if that one man's moment of vulnerability and courage just unleashed the floodgates. And he said, Dwight, you're not going to believe this, but we went... Every single man in that room, we went around the circle and with tears, they're telling stories of their children. Pray for my kids too, will you? Pray for my kids. He came to me and said, I can't believe it. Oh, no, I want to tell you something, my friend. I believe it. Because while we dream of the garden for our marriages, we dream of the garden for our families. We want a garden for our parents. We want a garden for our children. We keep waking up after those dreams east of Eden. We started, we destined, we were meant for the land of God and we are stuck in the land, as it were, of wandering. The land of Nod. I want to read to you now a very pensive confession. Another friend of mine gave me this book just a week and a half ago. Karen and I were reading it uh, for worship this last weekend. I want to read this to you. This is John Ortberg. He's a teaching pastor at Willow Creek Church. You've heard of Willow Creek. He's a teaching pastor there. Title of the book, The Life You've Always Wanted. I can tell it's going to be a wonderful book. But I want to read this to you because maybe I can hide behind his words. Maybe you can hide. We'll let somebody else be vulnerable today. Then you and I won't have to be. Opening... Opening words, I am disappointed. Listen to this. I am disappointed with myself. I am disappointed not so much with particular things I have done as with aspects of who I have become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repair. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. Some of this some of this disappointment is neurotic. Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think of me, even people I don't know. Isn't that crazy? Some of this disappointment I know is worse than trivial. 
It's simply the sour fruit of self-absorption. I attend a high school reunion and I can't choke back the desire to stand out by looking more attractive or having achieved more impressive accomplishments than my classmates. I speak to someone with whom I want to be charming and my words come out awkward and pedestrian. I am disappointed in my ordinariness. I want to be, in the words of Garrison Keillor, you know Garrison Keillor, I like this, I want to be named Sun God, King of America, Idol of Millions, Bringer of Fire, the Great Haji, Thundar, the Boy Giant. You don't get it, but I love that. <clears throat> but some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so that they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights, and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look, on and I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and nobody yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes and I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I had put there and I wished I could have taken those 60 seconds back. Give them to me. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks I merely rushed the children to bed so I could have some more time to myself. I am disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, a friend, a neighbor, and a human being in general. I think of the day I was born when I carried the gift of promise, the gift given to all babies. I think of that little baby and what might have been. The ways I might have developed mind and body and spirit. The thoughts I might have had. The joy I might have created. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. Yet the truth is, I am embarrassingly sinful. I am capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do. I'm disappointed at my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray for very long without my mind drifting into a fantasy of angry revenge over some past slight I thought I had long since forgiven or some grandiose fantasy of achievement. I can convince people I am busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. There are just... These are just some of the disappointments. Oh, I have other ones, darker ones, that I'm not ready to commit to paper. The truth is, even to write these words is a little misleading because it makes me sound more sensitive to my fallenness than I really am. Sometimes, although I am aware of how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much. And I am disappointed at my lack of disappointment.
Ah. So is there any hope? Any hope for the likes of you and me, born, (laughs) falling asleep, dreaming of Eden, but awakening after a nightmare and being reminded we live in a land of disappointment. The land east of Eden, the land of Nod. Gone, by the way, the garment of light. Oh, I tell you, the garment of light went away in my marriage long ago. You say, gone now. Nothing left but the nakedness of our own failures, the nakedness of our own guilt. Nothing left but a clutched handful of broken dreams, broken families, broken relationships. What hope is there for a family living the east side of Eden? I want to end where we begin. Go right back to chapter 3, please. One last time, read this. There's got to be some hope somewhere. Chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. I want to tell you something. What you have just read is a moment of sheer and utter grace and absolute horror. You think of what has just happened. When the tear-stained face of God and His trembling hand, and I wish for a moment you would allow that anthropomorphism, that that, that humanness. When the tear-stained face and the trembling hand of God stoop over one of Eden's spotless, guiltless, let's just say it's a lamb. We don't know what it is, but let's just say it's a lamb, a spotless little lamby. And God Himself, God Himself inflicts the very first death in the history of the universe. I want to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, Lucifer didn't cause this death. Adam and Eve didn't create the death. Not anybody. The first death in the history of the universe. And by the way, you can imagine the gawking, gazing, onlooking universe watching as God commits the act Himself. By the way, God Himself has never seen death. He doesn't know death. He's just warned that death will come if you separate yourself from Me. God takes that knife himself and slits the throat (laughs) in a breathless moment of utter horror and amazing grace God steps up himself and provides the sacrifice that alone can cover their nakedness and hide their shame you think God is crying now Do you think the tears are streaming down the Creator's face as He lays that dying creature in the sod of Eden? He Himself provides the Lamb. Hallelujah. Even as one day He Himself will be the Lamb. We're on the cross of Calvary. Never forget it. Four words in the Greek. Four words in the English. God was in Christ. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Our dysfunction, our brokenness, our disappointed failures. He put it all on Jesus so that someone else could pay the penalty for our mess and someone else could stand up and say, I'll heal you. Come to me. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Still the smile on the face of a teary-eyed Creator. Come to me. Broken marriage. 
you bring it to me. Shattered home, you bring it to me. You got parents back at home going through a divorce right now? Bring your parents to me. You come to me. Not sure your identity anymore? Struggle for your niche in society because of the home and the family you inherited? Bring it to me. Bring me your failure. Bring me your brokenness. And I will make you new again. Never forget the words on the screen right now. They are the Creator's promise to you and me on the eve, on the inauguration of a new journey deep into the heart of family life. Don't let us never forget as we journey. These words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I love this. So if anyone is in Christ, hallelujah. If anyone is in Christ, there is a what? Read it with me. There is a what? New creation. Whatever you had before, it's new now if you're in Christ. There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Now read the last line with me. See, everything has become new. It's become what in Christ? How has it become? It's become new. Broken. Shattered. But new. I want to end with a story. I love this story. So, if you heard it before... Just enjoy it all over again with me. It happened in South Chicago. A little synagogue decided, hey, we, we, we got to redesign. We got to remodel. This is, this is not what we want. We want more. And so they called the architects in and they sat down and you've seen those architect plans and they, they papered it out. They got, ooh, hey, this is going to be something. The crowning act of the restoration was to place in the narthex or the foyer of that synagogue beautifully sculpted glass, mirrors. In fact, they had to order them from Italy. They were carved in Italy. They've come now for that final piece to be installed. And that jet plane leaves Italy and lands at O'Hare in its bosom. The shimmering glory that will now make the restoration complete. Well, the truck, specially equipped truck, comes to meet the plane. The mirrors carved carefully placed inside that truck. And as they're going down the Eisenhower or one of those interstates in Chicago, the truck swerves to avoid an accident. And in the swerve, the truck is thrown off and crashes against the side banister. The glass inside shatters to a thousand shards. They get on the cell phone and they call the architect. What are we going to do? And the architect says, hey, 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 don't touch it. Leave it right there. And the architect's hurried to that accident site. Painstakingly, they picked up each piece, transporting the broken pieces to the synagogue. Several weeks later, on open house day, visitors walked into that foyer and their breath was taken away. There on the wall, broken pieces of mirror affixed together, shimmering like an acre of diamonds. And beneath the creation... A brass plate with these words, broken to be made beautiful. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, you take the shards of your life. You take the pieces of your marriage. You take the brokenness of your home and you give it to nail-scarred hands, I promise you. Nope, 2 Corinthians 5.17 promises you that He will take that broken story. And one day, when the universe looks at the shimmering diamonds of your life, beneath it will read, broken 
to be made beautiful. Hallelujah. Amazing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a broken life, that saved a broken marriage, that saved a broken home like mine. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.